glad to have you worshiping with us. I have a couple of announcements that I want to call to your attention. Uh, first of all, we have an evening service here tonight, but the evening service, we had scheduled it for outside, but the evening service is going to be in the fellowship hall. So if you want to join us at 6 p.m. tonight, 6 p.m., uh, at this point right now, Alec Packer is planning on uh, bringing us a little message. We'll have some music and a good time just to hang out and spend some time together as a, as a church family. And so we're hope, hopefully that you'll be uh, able to join us for that. That's at 6 p.m. tonight. Also, I want to remind you that we have a 4th of July outreach coming up. Next Sunday is the 4th of July already, so amazingly. If you would be willing to help out either in uh, preparation for that uh, outreach or during the outreach or after the outreach or any or all of the above, uh, please contact uh, Ann and Darla or Mark Klein. And we're trying to get volunteers because there's a lot of things that need to happen and we need a lot of help uh, before, during, and after. So uh, Ann, I'll talk to you after the service. You can sign me up wherever you need me, okay? So whatever, whatever slot I need to fill, I'll be uh, willing to do that, okay? Good to... Also, a week from today, during the, right after the service here, uh, in the fellowship hall, our Haiti team and anybody interested in helping uh, pray for that Haiti team is asked to gather for a time of prayer. I think I got that right, so uh, if, you, if there's a correction, I'll let you know, but it's the first Sunday of every month we're, we're praying and gathering together to pray for our Haiti team that will be going out to Haiti here. I have first part of in the fall, September, October, so we're praying for them. Also, uh, our summer series, we're doing a summer series on critical race theory, so we invite you to join us on Wednesday evenings at 6.30 for that. We're looking forward to it. We had a good time the last, last Wednesday, and we're looking forward to a few more weeks of that. We're uh, looking forward to having a baptism here uh, one of these days, and so if you're interested in that, if you would be interested at all, please contact our church office. It's megan at creeksidedm.com, so we'd appreciate you doing that, and then we'll know when we can schedule that. We're shooting for sometime in July. That's what we'd like to do. So I think that's all that I'm going to call your attention to. A lot of stuff in the bulletin, so if you didn't get a bulletin they're on the welcome table as you enter the entryway there so okay all right is there anything else that anybody knows of that I didn't say that I need to be saying all right let's pray father in heaven I thank you for your your mercy and your grace and for the power of your word and I pray uh, that as we worship you in spirit and in truth as we worship you through the study of your word that you would speak to our hearts and that you would powerfully work in each of our lives. Not only so that we just gain this information about the Word of God, uh, that's not what's most important, Father, but that our lives would be changed as a result of encountering you in your Word. And so we pray to that end for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you know that we were on vacation last week, so I'll just we had a fine time, okay? We didn't do anything spectacular. We went and visited family in Indiana, and so that was good. And we're, we're back now, and everything is, is uh, going as planned. My mother-in-law was with us for a few weeks. as She had her hip surgery, and we, we took her back to Indiana, and everything was fine. So or she's doing well, so thanks for that. When our kids were younger, we used to do this thing called a family meeting, Okay? So a family meeting was a time in which we would get together, I'd get all, all of them together, all the little tribe and my wife, and we would deal with any problems we were having in the family. We would discuss 
future plans and we would disseminate any kind of information that needed to uh, get out there for our family. And I was thinking about that because in light of uh, Matthew chapter 18, in Matthew chapter 18, is, which is where we're at in our study of Matthew, we find Jesus giving the, the fourth of his major teaching sections in the book of Matthew, and he's calling a family meeting, if you will. If you look down at the text, if we, uh, we look at the text of Matthew 18, we see that beginning in, in verse 6, he says something about these little ones who believe. Well, we see this repeated in verse 6 and in verse 10 and verse 14, okay? And then if you look down at the verse 15, you see he talks about if your brother, and then he mentions your brother, your brother, your brother in verses 15, 21, and 35. A little later on in the text, he's talking about your fellow slaves, he says fellow slaves in verses 29 and verse 31 and verse 33. So all of these are just different ways of saying, I'm talking to you fellow believers, okay? And so Jesus is calling them together, and in his instruction, he's giving a family meeting. And in this family meeting, he has several valuable lessons to teach them regarding the value of each individual person in the family, and also how we're supposed to treat each other in the family. And so he gives this instruction to the church then and to the church now that includes several things. First of all, the greatness, that, that greatness is achieved through meekness. That's the first nine verses, which we're going to talk about this morning. But then in verses 10 through 14, he's talking about the value of each individual member of the family. And then verses 15 through 18, he's talking about, or through 20, he's talking about what we need to do as far as helping those who are sinning in the family. And in the last section, the bigger section of it, it's about what does it mean to forgive? And how can we forgive people in the family? And so we start to discuss here today, Jesus' little family meeting, the first topic of discussion is that greatness comes through meekness. See, unfortunately, uh, some of the disciples were a little bit more concerned about their own position, asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And when they asked this question, it prompted Jesus to give this response to them that would be the remedy for that whole issue of greatness in the kingdom. And so we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 through 9, and in this section, Jesus reveals two travel secrets to provide proving that meekness is really the root, the, the root, R-O-U-T-E, uh, to greatness, okay? The pathway to greatness. So if you have your Bibles or if you have an app on your phone or you want to reach under the seat in front of you and grab one of those Bibles and find Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read the first nine verses, and then we'll look at those two travel secrets that reveal or prove to us that meekness is the root to greatness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, And at that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck 
and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man, to that man, through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Wow, some pretty powerful stuff there. So let's first of all talk about the, the, the first little marker or road sign on the way to greatness, which is the, he reveals to us the road that we must take to achieve true greatness. And the route to greatness comes with uh, it was revealed to us in two ways, at least I think in the text. First of all, there's a request that's given by the disciples. Who's greatest in the kingdom? Mark tells, or I, I, the parallel in Luke actually tells us that uh, they were arguing about this. Can you imagine? They were arguing about which one of us or who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now it's probably, likely, it's speculation, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that Peter's prominence in the last few instances in the Gospel of Matthew have prompted this. You remember Peter is the one who says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, speaking for the rest of the, of the disciples. It's Peter who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter who went to the sea and caught the fish and got the, the money for the tax. So it's like they're going, well, who's, who is the greatest in, in the kingdom? Isn't it interesting that in the church of Jesus Christ, the struggle of pride is not any less than it is in the world? Because I would guarantee you that in, in every boardroom, in every break room, in every lunchroom, and every classroom, it's the same thing going on. Everybody's kind of jockeying for position. Who is the big dog here? Who are the, the big people, the important people, the people we must impress? It's the same, not only in the world. What's the pecking order here? First thing we're trying to figure out when we go into some place is who's the top and where do I stand? And so the preoccupation with earthly status uh, in their culture and in ours, guess what? It's completely antithetical to Jesus. It's completely antithetical to Jesus' model. Because what did Jesus model before us? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many in Mark chapter 10. It's completely antithetical to Jesus' mission. In Matthew chapter 16, we saw where Jesus said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and He must suffer and die and rise again because Jesus' mission was about Him sacrificing. Before there was victory, ultimately, there would be this agony. And he, he, His mission is to redeem a lost people and it cost Him His life in order to do it. So that was his mission. And it's completely antithetical to his message. We saw several weeks ago, months ago actually, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus on Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
In Matthew chapter 16, we saw where Jesus said in verse 24 that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? He must be a big shot. He must be an important person. He must be very well known. No, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So all that the disciples are arguing for here, all that they're jockeying for position here for, is completely antithetical to everything Jesus was trying to accomplish. It's a sad day. And so then we see Jesus' response in verses 2 through 5. And Jesus taught two valuable lessons about greatness and how meekness is the root to greatness. And the first lesson that we see is that humility is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you can keep it this way. Humility is necessary for entrance into the kingdom. Humility is necessary for greatness in the kingdom. We'll do with the entrance first. Humility is necessary for entrance. So, through an object lesson, what was the object lesson? He took a little child, and he put the child in front of them. Through an object lesson and through astute instruction, Jesus redirected their focus from a person's position as the measure of greatness towards a person's perspective as the means to greatness. It's not your position that's the measure of your greatness. It's our perspective that is the means to greatness. And so he focused, they were focused on what? They were, they were focused on superiority and status. Who's greatest? And he says, no, what matters, what really matters is surrender and service. Not, not your greatness, but service. You kind of wonder if Jesus is kind of going, you know, I'm not sure about you guys. Are, are you guys even in the kingdom? I mean, look at the text. He, sa- he says in verse 3, and he said, Truly I say to you. Whenever you read in the Bible, truly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you, it's like, uh, better pay attention to this. It's a statement, whatever follows is of absolute certainty. I say to you, you can take this to the bank. You can bet your life on it. And so he says, you, you, you got to get this straight. It's a declaration of certainty. And what's so certain? He said at the end of verse 3. Unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, who's great among the kingdom? Who's the greatest, Jesus? Oh, whoa, whoa, time out. Rewind. Uh, I think we need to get our perspective. Are you guys even in? The kingdom? Because here's what it takes to be in the kingdom. You must turn and become like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, what you need to understand is Jesus is talking here about your salvation. He's talking about literally determining whether a person is a member of the kingdom of God or not. And the first thing is we must turn. It means a 180-degree turn from our willful self-reliance to absolute dependence upon God. That's what turn means. And then we must become like little children. You see, in their culture, the the children were the, the least important beings on the planet. They were insignificant. They were nothings, nobodies. 
So we must become nobodies. We must, in humble dependence, rely upon God. That's what he's talking about. To turn and become like children requires a radical change of mind. It's not who is the greatest. No, you got to become the least. you got to become a little child. Now, to help us understand that, I, I think there's like, there are a few ways, characteristics of children that I think will help us understand that what he's really talking about here, and he specifically lays it out, is humble faith in God. So what do little children do? First of all, little children, uh, for us to be little children uh, entering the kingdom, it requires humble faith. We must run to the Father. We must run to the Father. In Matthew chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, 417 exactly, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is, is to run to the Father in absolute dependence upon Him. For His mercy. And to understand that we are in need of Him. Several years ago we were having a garage sale. and There was a guy. Drove up in a car. Got out of the car. The guy was about 6'5". Weighed about 350 pounds. He had a pair of bib overalls on with no shirt. It was the middle of July. And he walked into the garage, we were having the garage sale, and our two-year-old daughter at the time looked up at him, and she made a beeline right for me, and she jumped up into my arms. And she said something, uh, as only a two-year-old uninhibited could say, that guy's really big. I think she actually said, Mommy, he's really fat. And... To run into our Father's arms in absolute dependence upon His mercy. Understanding we got nothing. We cannot stand on our own. This, I think, is the picture. Like a child abandons their self-reliance and is at the mercy of their parent. A repentant person humbly runs to our Father in absolute dependence upon His mercy and His protection and His grace in order to receive forgiveness of our sins. In response to, what was that child in front of those people for? In response to His invitation. Notice that Jesus invited the child to come and sit before them. And the child responded in humble faith and dependence. Which is a picture of what it means for every person to Come to God the Father through faith in the Son is a response of His invitation and that comes as a result of our running into His arms in dependence upon Him. And see, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that brings us to the realization of our own corruption and our own future destination of eternity apart from God. That's why it takes humility. There's no proud people in the kingdom of God. Because proud people are self-reliant. We don't need Jesus. We don't need God. What do you need? Oh, I'm doing fine on my own. Uh Uh-huh, until. There will always come a day, there will always come a time, always come a place in which we realize we are not in control. And we must run in faith to a God who is merciful, who will extend His mercy and His love to us. Apart from Him, our destiny is, the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
We must come saying, I have nothing to offer and everything to gain, and I'm at your mercy as my Father. Secondly, little children, we must rest in the Son, S-O-N, the Son of God. We've had the blessed privilege of taking our our children with us overseas on, on some mission trips. And every time our children had to rest and trust in the fact that we were going to take care of them, that we were going to be good to them, that they were going to be okay. Children must rest in their parents in the same way that every one of us must rest in the work of the son in order for us to be members of the child of uh, member or children of God we must rest in the fact that Jesus did indeed suffer that he did indeed die on the cross as the payment for sin and that he rose again in order to secure our right standing before God for all who would put their faith or their trust in him we must rest in him it's not an act of us it's a reliance upon him in order for us to be his children, to be in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 11, we studied this passage. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We must rest in him. We must run to him. We must rest in him. And we must receive the gift that he gives of salvation through his son. I've never had our kids decline a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. You know, it's wrapped up. Ooh, is this one for me? Yeah, yeah, it's for you. Now, they didn't always like them, but they, they always took them, you know. And then they trashed it and went to the next one, you know. But in the same way, in humility, we must receive what God has done by faith through His Son, Jesus Christ. But as many, John says, as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. A gift does not become ours until we receive it. It can be under the tree, but it's not yours until you take it and open it and receive it. In the same way, we must receive the gift of salvation through faith in his Son. So I ask you this morning, Have you run in humble faith, childlike faith, to the Father, resting in the work of the Son, His death as the payment you deserve, and His resurrection in order to prove victory over life? You're resting in the Son. And have you received this gift of salvation through faith? If you haven't, then Jesus said, You're not in the kingdom of heaven. And I wouldn't want you to leave this morning without making sure that you are in the kingdom of heaven. And you can be if in childlike faith you acknowledge Christ's death as the payment for your sin. Turn from your self-directed life and surrender to whatever he has for you by faith. That's what Jesus is saying to them then. He says it to us now. And then humility is necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God. Humility is necessary for us to experience greatness in the kingdom of God. If you look at verses 4 and 5, he says this, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
What is he talking about? Meekness is the key to greatness in the eyes of the master. Now, humility is to, is to make oneself low. It's to know our place from God's perspective. It's a right understanding of who I am in light of who God is. That's what humility is. It's interesting because in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, I think we have a, a slide of this. It says, And sitting down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, there you go. Who's greatest in the kingdom? Jesus said, uh, the last people and the servants. They're the great ones in the kingdom. Those are the greatest people in the kingdom, according to Mark. Be last of all. And we see it in Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 43 through 45, a passage I quoted the, end, the last verse in. He says, but it's not this way among you, you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The road to greatness is through meekness. For several years, I served beside a couple of Hungarian pastors on mission trips. And in each of these trips, we were there and we were hosting a bunch of students from various, various ages trying to learn English and share the gospel with them. And these pastors were serving behind the scenes, making meals, cleaning up after the meals, picking up after everybody. They were serving those who are coming. And that's the secret, Jesus says. You must be servants of all. So I ask you who are here this morning who say, yes, as a, as a child I've run to Jesus, as a, to the Father, entrusting in Jesus, resting in who He is, and I've received the gift of salvation. Are we serving? Or are we seeking to be served in the kingdom of God? That's the question. You see, humble people are unassuming people. Humble people are not self-seeking or demanding. They're willingly obedient. They're giving. They're generous. They're kind. They're faithful. They're obedient and hospitable. And one evidence of that is if you look at verse 5, he says this, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See, humility is what brings us into a relationship with God, but humility is also that which governs our relationships with others in the kingdom of God. It's just not about getting in. It's about how we live in relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Disciples display humility by welcoming God's other spiritual children into their body, their, their church, their family. It's how we treat each other. You see, isn't it interesting that Jesus said, you know what, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like the children. Jesus equates himself with the children. The way you treat them is the way you treat me. Hmm, interesting. And these are especially the, the, the little children, the little ones. He says, and whoever humbles himself, in verse 5 he says, and whoever receives one such child, one such child, this, this insignificant, unimportant little child. And particularly as we receive those maybe who are <clears throat> not on the same 
social economic plane as us. Maybe they're not on the same econ uh, educational level as us. Maybe their health condition is different than ours. Maybe their spiritual maturity is different than ours. <clears throat> How do we treat these people? And Jesus says, the way you treat them is the way you treat me. Look at John chapter 13, verse 20. Uh, Jesus says, for truly, truly, I say, okay, truly, truly, okay, uh, take this one to the bank. The one who receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So how we treat God's children is actually how we treat the Son and the Father. To receive another believer is to welcome them. I think about that. You know, come to church, you're, you're, you're involved in interacting with people. It's not just on Sunday morning, but anytime we're as the body gathering and people are gathering. Are, are we receiving them with deliberate kindness and with special attentiveness to their needs? And this is the thing Jesus commands in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we look at verse 35 and verse 40, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in and they go, well, when, when did we do that? Uh -huh. And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine. This is the passage and this is the thrust of the passage. It's brothers of mine. It's those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ just like we are. That's the thrust of that passage. Now, there are other passages that talk about us caring for the poor and the needy and the hungry and thirsty who aren't members of the family of God, but not that passage. That passage is talking about believers on believers. And if we treat, if we are giving food and shelter and clothing to another believer, we're giving it to Jesus. Essentially, that's what he says. Because we're connected in the body of Christ and to the head of the body who is Jesus. So I thought about this and I thought, well, Okay, well, how do I, how do you as believers, how do we personally welcome others into the body? Now, this is not about how they welcome us, okay? I, I, I want to make a point of that. Because immediately we're going to go, well, you know, I walked in, they, they weren't very friendly. Or, I, I don't know, they, they kind of, they, this person looked at me, I know they were being judgmental. Really? So you know other people, you're like Jesus then, you know other people's thoughts, you, uh, you're really good. No, it's about how am I treating you? With kindness, with gentleness, with humility, with sensitivity, with genuine interest. You know why I'm convinced I'm, I, I forget most people's names? Because I'm more interested in what they think of me than I am of getting to know them. Because if I was really interested in them, then I probably would remember their name. So how do we treat other people? You see, greatness comes through meekness. The road to greatness is through meekness. But there are roadblocks that we must eliminate. And that's the second lesson that Jesus teaches here. The roadblocks we must avoid to achieve true greatness. And there are a couple of them that come up in the text, at least two roadblocks that prevent greatness through meekness. And the first one in verses 6 through 9 is that we instigate sin in others. Notice how Jesus transitions here. He says in verse 6, but, at least that's in the New American Standard, I'm not sure it's in the ESV, but is a contrast. There's a contrast here that he's pointing out. You see, as a parent, 
Uh, when you're a parent, you become zealous or jealous for your child's concern. You're trying to protect them from corruption and provide for them constructive things, right? You want to prevent corruption and you want to provide constructive things. Well, our Heavenly Father is no different. He's equally passionate about providing, protecting, and providing. And so He calls upon us as His children to make sure that we protect and provide for His other children. So He says in verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, he's talking about children of God, to stumble. Uh Uh-oh, not a good thing. It's not a good thing. So he teases out this principle. There's a principle that's stated by revealing the crime and the consequence. What's the crime? The crime is causing one of these little ones to stumble. See, Jesus, in verses 5 and 6, he's contrasting. The hospitality of humble faith, which welcomes these little ones into the family, with the hubris of causing a believer to stumble. Verse 6. Humble hospitality is verse 5. The hubris of causing another one to stumble. The pride, that's another word for pride, of causing another to stumble, is in verse 6. And what is the consequence? The crime is causing them to stumble. But what is the consequence? Oh, my paraphrase, it would be better for that person if a millstone, that is a, a big rock that they used to grind out the grain, weighing several hundred pounds, was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. It would be better off for them that that happened than that they experienced the wrath of God. That's not a pleasant thought. You see, Christ calls us to be zealous for other believers' holiness as a matter of life and death for them and us. It's a matter of life and death that we're concerned about not causing another brother or sister to stumble. So this whole issue of, yeah, it really doesn't matter how I live. Really. I think Jesus has something to say about that. It really does matter how we live, whether we're causing other people to stumble or not. It's a wake-up call for Christians to take personal holiness and its impact on others, seriously. John Owens, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, which I didn't read that there. I picked it up in a commentary that I was reading for, in preparation. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a couple of ways we can cause others to sin. There may be more, but these are the ones that, that I came up with. First of all, we can encourage them to sin, right? Through our encouragement. I mean, that's what Eve did to Adam, right? Oh, you know, actually, that's what the serpent did to Adam and Eve. Ah, you know, it's not going to be a problem. You know, God won't care. Surely he won't die. I mean, God's not going to take it out. It'll be be no worries, no worries here. Just just eat of it, and then, you, you know, you'll be fine. No, we can cause other people to sin. We can encourage them. We can encourage fellow students. You know, it really doesn't matter if you cheat on an exam. We can encourage other students or young people. It really doesn't matter. You know, you can, you can copy this music. You can copy these videos. You can copy this stuff and, uh, in violation of, uh, you know, laws and, and, and just watch it, you know, and distribute it. It's not a problem. You know, who cares? We can encourage people to sin. We can encourage our coworkers to sin. Yeah, you don't have to write... You don't, you don't have to write down all your hours, you know, just, you know, so you didn't work that many hours. Or you can bump up your expense account, you know, just, you know, you know, just 
elevate it a little bit. I mean, the company's paying for it, right? So they, it didn't matter. It doesn't cost you anything. The company's going to take care of it. We can cause other people to sin and encourage it. Well, you know, we can participate in gossip. We can actually encourage gossip. Well, you know what I heard. Oh, yeah, tell me. We can promote materialism. We can encourage other people to sin. This is a problem that we need to watch out for. And secondly, through our example, which they kind of overlap. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, the Apostle Paul had something to say about uh, an example. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. What do I mean? What, is it, what does Paul mean? Put a, a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. Okay, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Young people watch us. And they know what we do with our hands. Where we go with our feet. What we watch with our eyes and what we listen to with our ears. They're very observant. And if we give them the wrong clues, guess what? They're going to watch and they're going to see. Employees, our fellow employees are watching. Whether we're working the hours that we say that we're working. They're watching to see if we take longer breaks than we should or if we take things and, you know, the company won't miss this, you know. In business, you know, do we take advantage of customers? Do we cut corners? Do we inflate the prices? Do we deal unfairly? Do our words and our actions towards our spouse, if we're married, give other people justification for demeaning and running down their spouse because they see that's what we do? What about what we post on social media? Does it encourage other people to sin? You know, I know. I've seen believers posting profanity on on, you know, social media. And I go, really? That kind of strikes me as uh, problematic. Do we flaunt our liberty? And we have freedom in Christ to do a lot of things. But do we flaunt our liberty, which would provide other people an excuse to sin? For, for them, if they don't do it out of faith, it's sin. So, you know, you may have freedom to consume alcohol, but if you're posting on Facebook when, where the best uh, happy hour is, it might be a problem uh, for someone who is an alcoholic and who struggles with alcohol. Because then they think, oh, well, good. I, I, that's, that's a temptation for me that I, I don't need, can ill afford. You see, in the body of Christ, we're supposed to restrain liberty out of loving concern for the purity of others in the family. Romans 14, verses 19 through 21. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything which will cause your brother or sister to stumble. Just got to think about it. I mean, I, I think in our culture, we just, we don't, we don't think about what the impact would be on other people. Now, I'm not telling you what to do, what not to do. I'm saying that we need to be examining ourselves in light of the Scripture and let the Spirit of God work in our hearts so that we don't cause other people to stumble. 
Secondly, the principle is punctuated. If you, there's this example, and we see this principle is punctuated. Not only is it stated, but it's punctuated in verse 7. He says, woe, woe, two woes. Woo. Uh, woe is an impending doom coming. Okay, So he's saying, woe, it's impending doom. The world is under God's condemnation, it says in verse 7, because of its stumbling blocks. You know, it's inevitable. The world is the, you know, the, the, the spirit of our age. You know, they're under condemnation because of the stumbling blocks. I mean, think about it, folks. The normalization of sexual perversion is just rampant in our, in our culture. Just read this week, you know, Sesame Street. Now they got two gay, uh, gay couples or two gay couples on Sesame Street. You know, so that's the stuff that you put on, you know, the Iowa Public TV for your kids to, you know, see um, you know, Bernie and Oscar and all this stuff, you know, and learning those little innocuous little lessons of life. Not anymore. At least it hasn't been for a while, but now it's even more blatant. You see, advertisements, if you, if you listen to the radio, you watch TV, you get advertisements. Advertisements are encouraging greed, encouraging pride, encouraging Lust and power. We have the celebration of dishonesty and decadence all around us. I thought about this. Any more sinful behavior is being rewarded. Let me think about last summer, a year ago, when all the, the looting and the rioting and the vandalism was taking place, and we have members of Congress setting up funds to post bail for people who were doing stupid stuff. What? That's the world is under condemnation. California, you know, California has a Proposition 47. So now, if you go into a store and you steal anything under $950 in value, guess what? Nothing happens. Oh, it's a misdemeanor. But basically, they're gonna, the police are going to stand there and watch you and, and wave at you on the way by. Yeah, well, you know, have a good day. That's insanity. This is the kind of stuff Jesus says the world is under condemnation. Woe to the world. They're under condemnation for the, for the sins. But he doesn't stop there. It's a truism. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks and temptations will come. But woe to the man through whom a stumbling block comes. He takes the generic warning to the world in verse 7. And he particularizes it. By holding specific people accountable. See, to love our brother and sister in Christ is to take seriously our responsibility to keep them from sinning. And we need to be more aware of that, I think. But it doesn't just happen there. See, you know, we ask ourselves, where in my life would I be causing other believers to sin? I think that's the question. What are my actions, my attitudes, where am I going, what am I watching, what am I saying that would cause other people who are believers in the Lord Jesus to stumble? But he doesn't stop there. It's not just instigating sin in others, but it's ignoring sin in ourselves. You look at verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read it. He says this. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Wow. Okay. Now, are we literalists here? 
Yes, we are. We're going to literally interpret this figurative language. Okay? Hope I didn't lose you there. Okay? We're going to literally interpret figurative language. So when Jesus speaks figuratively, we should interpret it figuratively. And that's what's going on. He's not, he's not advocating self-mutilation. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay? He's not literally advocating cutting our hands off, plucking our eyeballs out. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is saying, this is drastic stuff that needs immediate attention in our lives. Okay? Interestingly enough, the lengths to which Jesus calls us to avoid sexual sin, rewind back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, is the same degree to which he says we must work to avoid all sin in our lives. Now, so you can read Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30 if you want, because he's saying the same things. You know, cut off your hand, pluck out your eyes, similar type stuff. With regard to sexual sin, now he's saying with regard to any sin, we need to be willing to undergo the same drastic measures, no matter how radical, no matter how painful, to protect ourselves from committing evil or causing other people to commit evil. That's, that's, this is hard stuff. Our hands, our foot, and our eyes, those are just the ways we interact with the world, right? I mean, that's the way we live, right? Our, our hands is what we do, our, our feet is where we go, our eyes is what we watch. You know, you could say cut off your ears, same thing as what we hear. But these are the active ways that we're, we could be pursuing sin in our lives. And so what does it mean to cut off or to pluck out? It means to eliminate whatever possession, whatever situation, or whatever association that is sinful itself. Okay, so whatever possession, whatever situation, whatever association with others that is sinful itself or tempts us to sin or makes us vulnerable to sin. So whatever it is that would cause me to be a sinful activity would entice me to sin or would make me vulnerable to sin. Get rid of it. That's what he's saying. You say, well, I don't know. I'm a little confused. You see, if something, no matter how precious it is, engages us in sin, entices us or encourages us to sin, we got to get rid of it. John MacArthur put it this way. He says, great danger requires drastic measures. Some of you have seen the movie, a Christian movie called Fireproof. During the movie, the guy was struggling with pornography. And so what did he do? He threw his computer in the dumpster. You say, well, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, but guess what? If he didn't have a computer, he couldn't watch pornography at home. What am I supposed to do? Get rid of my phone? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you need a flip phone. You still call people, text people, receive messages, but you can't do internet on a text phone or a flip phone, I don't think. I heard of some guys taking towels and putting them over the TV in the motel rooms because they travel a lot. As a reminder, I can't watch this stuff. It's drastic measures, painful measures. Some of us need to cut up our credit cards and then call to cancel it. I mean, don't just cut it up because your account's still active, okay? Just so you know. But some people need to cut. Some of us need to avoid shoe stores. You know? 
If I'm stepping on your toes, it's intentional. Okay? Because Jesus did. He says, you got to get rid of this stuff. Because this stuff, now look at He says, you're in danger of hell. What does he mean? Can I lose my salvation? No, he doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. What he means is, if we don't cut this stuff out, it proves we're not even in the kingdom. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says that he's come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is not teaching two different things from the, the Bible's not teaching two different things. Jesus is not saying you're going to lose your salvation. Jesus is going to say, if, if we are persisting in sinful behavior, knowing sinful behavior, that, then it calls into question whether we're really surrendered to Him. So you can write that down, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. Okay? This is how we know that we're in Him. The one who says it is Him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. I'm not standing here as a perfect person. You know, I'm asking God, show me what are these things in my life that need to be cut out. You know? It's a process. The question is, are we willing to submit to the process? If we're serious about pursuing personal holiness, guess what? We'll be passionate about protecting others from sin. If I'm concerned about personal holiness in my life, I will be definitely concerned about uh, not causing you to stumble. I'll be thinking about that next time I'm ready to rail at the gal at the checkout counter because, you know, she didn't know diddly squat about, or the, the, the telemarketer or the person from CenturyLink because my internet speed is like way low and it should be 40 MBPs and it's 10 and I'm paying for 40, and I'm ticked off because I'm paying good money for not the service that I want. But, oh, my kids are watching, my wife is listening, people are seeing. Self-control is fruit of the Spirit. God wants us to exhibit it. Well, Donald aptly summarizes Christ's call to personal holiness when he put it this way. He says, guarding oneself as a means of guarding all. When I guard myself, I'm guarding all. So you may be listening to this this morning, and you may not have ever surrendered your, your life to Jesus Christ. I want to tell you what, uh, life in Christ completely upside, uh, turns the world's perspective upside down because to be first, you must be last. You must be the servant. You say, I'm not, I don't want to go there. I like, I like being number one. Yeah, the, the reality is you're not. Because there's always somebody better than you. And in the end, all this world domination does is lead to emptiness and destruction. I would submit to you. I would submit to you that God's way of meekness leads to entrance into His family. And it leads to greatness. You see, humility is not, meekness is not weakness. It's a lion under control. We just looked at this morning in the first service how Jesus had the authority to 
call down, well, we didn't specifically talk about that. I did, about 12 legions of angels to deliver him from this. Pilate thought he could sentence Jesus, and Jesus says, you can't do any. You can't do diddly squat unless my Father in heaven gives you permission. You're impotent. I'm omnipotent. And so, we are really impotent before a holy God. And God calls us in humility. To, so I plead with you. If you're here and listening and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never run to Him in abject dependence upon His mercy, rested in Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for your sin, His resurrection to provide you purification from sin, and you have a right relationship with God, right standing before God, and you have never received His gift of salvation, I'm pleading with you. I don't want you to go to a fiery hell. I want you to be in the kingdom. And I plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ as his Savior. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I would say this. The pride of the disciples has no place in the kingdom. No place in God's family. He calls his followers to be living in lives of humility. And greatness through meekness means that we'll humbly enter the family of God through faith in Jesus. It means that we'll humbly receive other brothers and sisters as part of the family of of God. We'll care about them. That we will humbly not live our lives. We'll humbly live our personal holiness to keep others from stumbling. And in our own lives to keep ourselves from being judged. A commitment to personal holiness. And I think, you know what? When, when Jesus died on the cross, he demonstrated marvelous, marvelously the humility that he demands of his followers. Through the incarnation and through the crucifixion, Jesus modeled what he requires of us. And as we, we take the, the elements on your on your chair, there's a, you peel the first layer back, there's a, there's a wafer, and then the next one, there's a... These are a remember, a recognition of Jesus' sacrifice so that all who believe could have forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. So all who would run humbly to him would be received into his family. You see, Jesus descended from greatness so that we could descend to greatness through faith in him. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to take a moment or two to search your heart, confess your sin, and then take the elements as the praise team comes and leads us in this next song. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, uh, and by your grace alone, we can become your children. And I pray, I pray for each one here listening or in person, that doesn't know you has never waved the white flag of surrender, yielding their self-directed life to a Savior-dependent life, that they would cry out in their desperation, in their mercy as a child. Say, Lord, I accept what Jesus did. I accept what you did on the cross as a payment for my sin, and I trust you to be my Lord and Master. And I thank you that you rose again so that I could be right in right standing with God. I pray for each of us who knows you, Father that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to 
grow in humility, of demonstrating humility to other brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would not be concerned about our greatness, but your glory. I pray that we would welcome others into the body and that we would be concerned about our own personal purity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.